Hello and welcome to The Last Looks Podcast, a show where we catch up with talented hairstylists and makeup artists in the film and television industry. We'll pick their super creative brains and find out all the good stuff. Join me, your host, Jamie Lee, in finding out what's what in the hair and makeup departments around the world. Now it's time for Kit Corner, where we shine a spotlight on artists who've created products with the film and television industry in mind. Products designed by artists for artists. Hi, Marietta. Hello, Jamie. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Now, you are a professional makeup artist and have developed a fantastic book called The Little Brown Book. Can you tell me what is The Little Brown Book and what gave you the idea to create it? The Little Brown Book is really a comprehensive, quick reference book of terminology and titles that I think everyone working in the industry should know or anybody who plans to have a career in this industry. It's just one of those things where after years of working and teaching in the industry, I had so many pieces of paper hanging around that I finally decided to put it all in book form and make it easy for people. I made it small enough so that you can slip it in a set bag, have a quick reference if you hear a word while you're on set and you don't know what that word means. And it's just this little glossary of all the terms and the lingo that we use in the industry. I love it. What a brilliant idea. How did you come up with the title? You know what? I created the book with a different title prior to this. And the title was Roll Sound, Rolling Speed, Marker, Action. And I felt it needed a revamping. And, you know, the little black book that people talk about that has all the information. And after discussing with a girlfriend of mine, it's like, okay, it needs to be something similar to like the little black book. Because the little black book holds all the secrets. And I thought, well, let's call it a little brown book. That will hold the secrets for the terminology for the industry. And then I made little small in the graphic and I send it to one of my former students who's also a graphic designer and a makeup artist and she says I've got the perfect cover for this and she came up with how the cover should look. That's very cool. Who do you think would benefit from the Little Brown Book? I think anyone who plans to have a career or has a current career within the film and television, print world, retail world, anyone who's working within the beauty industry as a whole can benefit from it. You know, whether it's the little PA coming on set, not knowing any of the lingo and being thrown on there. This is a good reference tool for them. Somebody who just wants to work in the retail industry. That's a great reference tool for them. The grip, the electric, makeup, hair, wardrobe. Anybody who is planning a career in beauty and entertainment can benefit from this book because there's no comprehensive glossary out there for you to find terminology and the the references and the meaning of all these things that you hear, these secret language that you hear. There's nothing that breaks that secret language down. Well, there is now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) years of sitting on set, you know, literally, Jamie, I sat down and I was writing. Every time I would hear something, I would write it and then try to find out what it meant from people I was working with because that's the only way, really. Yeah, that's true. I wish the little brown book was around when I started out. It would have been super helpful. (laughs) I know, especially coming here, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's so true. So is the book ever revised to keep up with the changing industry? Yes, because I revised it when I changed the title and I added all the pop culture and, you know, the start paperwork and all the things that we as industry professionals need to know. So I revised it and incorporated a lot of that in there and all the retail terms, some of the terms I picked up in Canada. And um, with 2020 being the way 2020 has been, I'm sure I'm going to be adding COVID-19 into the next revision. Um, So yeah, I I think every couple of years, you know, especially with social media. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's constantly evolving. So adding all those things as we constantly evolve every couple of years is going to make a tremendous difference. Absolutely. That's great. So where can you purchase the book? You can purchase the book on one of my two websites. You can purchase it on the official film and television planner.com and vma.education. So you can purchase on either one of those two websites. And it's just $14.95. You know, it's a lot of information for just $14.95. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Marietta. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. Today, 
I'm speaking with the amazingly talented makeup artist Lois Burwell. Lois has worked on so many incredible projects, it's actually mind-blowing. From The Princess Bride to Braveheart, The Fifth Element to Saving Private Ryan, and so, so many more. Join me to hear about Lois's journey into the film industry. Pictures up. Last looks. Rolling. And action. Hi, Lois. Welcome to the Last Looks podcast. Well, thank you for having me. This is very exciting. I haven't done this before. It's all new. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure. Um, now, I want you to finish this sentence for me. All right. Once upon a time, there was a girl named Lois, and when she grew up, she wanted to be... I wanted to work in film. There you go. That's what I wanted to do. That's awesome. Um, and that was the, that's the burning desire. And fortunately, as a child, I enjoyed makeup. Um, I went to a local dance school, in fact, and it started off there because when we put on shows, which makes it sound sort of, you know, but they were very local, a local town hall. It wasn't, you know, yeah. it was small beer. Um, but when I did that, you know, obviously we played characters. So I found myself making up myself. And this was, you know, very early on when I was seven or eight. Oh, wow. And with the theatrical makeup and then making up those in my class, whether they were dolls or, you know, snowflakes or um, soldiers, whatever it happened to be. Yeah. So I just would do that at home and made up, obviously, the family, poor things, including my <laughs> grandmother, who was very patient. Um, but I didn't know, actually, that there was a career you could have in doing makeup. Yeah. Because I came from a working class family. It wasn't, a, you know, it was the idea of you could become a teacher or you could, you know, go be, my mother was a telephonist and then a seamstress and my mm -hmm. father was a household electrician. So it wasn't as if it was laid out. There were no film connections or anything like that. And it just, it just so happened that I, I wanted to explore film and started to work on student films, actually, okay. doing makeup and as well as costume in the beginning, because obviously it was, you know, all hands to the pump. Mm. And once I was the sound man as well, as doing <laughs> sandwiches. So that was how it started. And fortunately, I seemed to have an, an aptitude for makeup and was asked to go and work on their films when they left film school mm -hmm. and were doing like rock videos basically yeah so that's how I started off I mean literally that was it and fell on my feet I suppose and it was like sliding doors you know there were obviously times of working in a baker's or as a waitress or in the post office to mm -hmm. earn money to keep a roof over your head but it just so happened that people would well one connection the biggest break came actually really with Gregory's girl. So I was doing bits and bobs. And we were on a student film in the north of Scotland, staying in summer chalets. And this was October. So it's quite brutal. Yeah. And that's where I became the sound man because he went out for a packet of cigarettes and he's never been seen since. Oh my God. He went home. Um, but <laughs> it was quite funny. He's and, like, I'm uh, out of here. <laughs> yeah. And on the way back to London, we stopped at the Holt pub, which is a, a film pub in. Glasgow and the film makers would all kind of gather there so we stopped for a drink on the drive down yeah and I started to you know I was there with the other students and someone came up and started to talk to us and they all seemed to know each other and then I ended up talking to one of these chaps and in fact it was Mike Bradford and his friend was Bill Forsyth who was there who I didn't speak to or have a conversation with and a year later yeah, it must have been a year later, that May, from the October to the May. Um, I got a call from Paddy Higson, who was a really lovely woman who was a producer in Scotland, saying, Lois, do you want to work on a film with Bill Forsyth? And I said, well, I'd love to, but I don't know him and I'm not a member of the union. And in those days it was you had to be a member of a union to work mm -hmm. and you couldn't work without being a member of a union. So it was a catch-22. And she said, well, you know, who knows? It's very busy. We might get dispensation or something. I said, but yes, but I don't know him. How does he know me? And it came from 
that conversation I actually had with Mike Radford, not with Bill, all that oh my time goodness. before. That's amazing. Yeah, so that's how that came about. And it was great. And then obviously I started to apply to become a union member. Mm-hmm. And that took forever, just forever, knocking at the door, saying, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You know, can I at least be tested to have entry? And funnily enough, when I was interviewed, it was at the same time as Draftsman's contract came out. And it was considered for the first BAFTA Makeup Award because BAFTA was following the Academy Awards in giving an award for makeup. Oh, that's very cool. It got into, you know, like last six or something, um, Mm -hmm. six or seven, something like that. And, of course, that would have been, I assume, rather embarrassing for someone who wasn't a union member to be considered for nomination. So a test was offered, (laughs) an interview and then a test. And for my test, I mean, I was just a blithering, sweating. It was the height of summer. And I was just pouring buckets of of perspiration from nerves. (laughs) But my two models, one of whom was Peter Swords King, because we've worked together (laughs) on the draft contract. Contract, The the female model was Marina Sirtis, she of Star Trek. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) So who were just friends at the time, you know. Yeah, yeah. So what did you have to do in your test? Right, well, the test was quite interesting, and, and I think it was actually a good test in that you had to create a character on the woman who started off with a corrective makeup, mm-hmm. but it had to be a corrective makeup that had a kind of theme to it. Say it was Vogue 1920 or okay. something like that. You know? mm-hmm. So you'd have to explain what it was you were trying to do. So you had to use a bit of imagination as well. And then on the woman, again, was the ageing. So that prevented you from choosing someone who fit the bill initially because they had to you had to it was either end of a scale do you see what I mean yeah but on the man you had to do a wound um a wax nose to create (laughs) a character Mm -hmm. and a laid on full laid on hair beard oh wow so I turned Peter into Shylock (laughs) <laughs> to create a character oh my goodness please tell yeah. me you have photos of this I don't actually no. Oh. no that would have been brilliant um yeah. so how did you learn all these techniques did you do any type of formal training or was this just figuring no. it out and learning it on the job and yeah <laughs> yeah yeah learning that's it on amazing the job and um Yeah, and working out things backwards. The one thing I've learned working with so many brilliant makeup people, Mm -hmm. all of whom, well, not all of whom, but the vast majority of whom I suspect have got more talent than I have, um, (laughs) I've I've actually realized that I approach it in a different way. Okay. Rather than the technique being the guide, with me, it's the look that's the guide, and then I find the technique. So you know what you're trying to achieve, and you just figure it out as you go to try and get to that exactly yeah yeah that makes sense I think without classical training too it probably forces you to take that route because yes you haven't been shown a b c d to get to e you know what e looks like and you're just figuring out how to get there so I think I think that's it's probably it's a very creative way to do it it's also it can be a handicap as well Because I never fully feel, even now, all these years later, I never fully feel, you know, I've got that foundation. I mean, I have now, I suppose, by osmosis as well as, you know, training and working out and things and and work in collaboration with other makeup people. But there's always that kind of strain to it. Right. But then I think that strain, that tension is what actually is creative. Yeah. Do you feel like it's harder for you to teach somebody else how to do something because of that? Actually, no, I don't, funnily enough. That's good. No, I I don't. I, I think it's because by the time I'm showing them something, I've already worked it out. Right. But I will always say, now, look, this might not be what how you were shown to do this. It might not fit you. And you have to, I think, with everything, as long as it's safe, obviously. I mean, health and safety is the primary factor, obviously, and yeah. what you use. You don't use anything dangerous. Though, mm. God knows, when I first started, everyone cleaned their brushes with carbon tetrachloride, <laughs> you know. And, wow. and 
hexane and 355 were kind of banded about. I mean, you know, things evolve and change. But that was the formal training then. So, you know, things obviously, you have to have health and safety. That's the primary. But I do think that, that no one is a cookie cutter makeup artist. It doesn't fit well. So you have to be like Cinderella and find the shoe that fits. Yeah. Does that make any sense to you? No, absolutely. I think as artists, it's just kind of how it works. You, you can be shown how to do something. You could even, if you wanted to copy exactly how you've been shown for the first two or three times, but then you're going to find your own groove within that and go, oh, exactly. I might just adjust this or that, or, and then you find your own way. Yeah. So absolutely. I mean, there's, yeah. More, more than one way to do things. <laughs> Absolutely. More than one way to skin a rabbit. <laughs> that's much nicer than skinning a cat because that's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you, I didn't realise that in the UK there was a union. Oh, God, yeah. And it, it was knacky and it was really strict. And there was okay. a television branch which was completely separate from the hairstyling branch that was another separate division from the makeup artist branch, film oh, branch. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Because that's not currently the case, is it? No. No, it went through lots of sort of transformations and sort of everyone, you know, got lumped together and became back to. Yeah. And now, of course, you don't have to. I mean, and that, that really stemmed from the Thatcher idea of you don't have to be a member of a union to work. Right. Which, I mean, has its benefits and its shortfalls. Yeah. In that, there are rules that people are meant to follow. But, of course, if you do take them up, I mean, it's like, it's, it can be a bit toothless. You know, there are no ramifications for not abiding by the rules. You know, and that drives down, obviously, wages. It drives down health and safety to a certain degree. Yeah. And the length of hours, you know. I mean, I've yeah. definitely seen a transformation. I mean, I, I, to be perfectly honest, and I suppose it's not really a politically correct thing to say, but if I took the daily rate that people earn now and then you dialed it back 25 years, we earn more then than we do now. Right. So, yeah. I think it, as soon as that union kind of falls apart, it's uh, people are taken advantage of, aren't they? Yeah. And but at yeah. the same time, you don't want a union that has ridiculous ideas, which was no. part of the reason why the film industry started to fail in the UK because it was, oh, no, it's 6 o'clock, we're going home now. It doesn't matter whether the location is going to be lost and you have to get that extra half page or whatever it happens to be. You know, oh, I mean, it, yeah. it, it's like there has to be a middle path somewhere. Yeah, absolutely, especially yeah. if you want to get that shot. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that must have been excruciating for people to walk away from at times. It's just yeah. like, what? No, we're just about there. No, you have to wrap. Sorry. What? Yeah. yeah. Ooh, don't know if you'd see that happen these days. No. No, <laughs> no you wouldn't. <laughs> so you get into the union and then what happens? Where does your path take you? Well, funnily enough, I got into the union expecting to work. And, of course, what happened was I didn't work at all because <laughs> now I couldn't work on non-union things. I could only oh. work on union and no one knew me and I was the outsider. And people all knew each other. It was a very small group. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was the one who hadn't been formally trained. I was no one's relation. And I'm not saying, oh, poor me, but it was tough, actually. Yeah. And then fortunately, what happened was that there was a British rail strike. So everyone was, you know, desperate for anyone who could make it to, to help on films. And Pauline Hayes asked me to to go and do three days in, um, oh, God, what's the name of it? The Military Academy in the oh, UK, famous, can't remember now. Anyway, it was in the mm. countryside. Okay. So, and I didn't drive. So uh, at that point, couldn't afford a car. And, but I got a lift from a friend and made certain I just turned up there and there were, I think, 21 makeup people and 21 hairstylists. I mean, it was a big thing on the Lords of Discipline. And I was put in the crowd room, obviously, in between George Frost and Eric, all right, with Alan Boyle on one side, all these, you know, names to conjure with, and the lovely Roy Ashton, who was obviously famous for The Hammer, horror films so you know I, I was stuck with basically the the older boys because they must have thought that 
they keep an eye on me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and sort of the first morning was a bit awkward, but then I just got on and did the work because that's what I was there to do. And slowly but surely, conversations started. And by the end of the three days, you know, I was sitting at the table with them having lunch. So I, you know, and talking to different hairstylists and makeup artists. And, and then I was asked to go and do days on other people's films, um, which was nice. But basically, it also forced me to do my own films because I didn't have a choice, you know. Yeah. And I think that was good. So I think I launched as a head of department very early in that, you know, if you look at 99% of the credits, that's what they are. Yeah. And I don't even know if that's ideal, but that's how it was and that's the career I've had. It's pretty amazing. So that one job of three days gave you those enough context to kind of get you in into that click, I guess. Yeah, really. yeah. Uh, yes, that's it did. Amazing. It did. Yeah, and um, Tom Smith was very sweet. He was lovely, actually. Um, although he, he could be tricky, but he was a great makeup artist, really <laughs> great. And the big thing for me, the big request, I suppose, was being asked to go and do days because someone else had dropped out and was going off to do pickups on a Bond film. Yeah. Um, me to take Christine Alsop's place while she was doing the pickups on Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, wow. That was 1983. So for me to do that was just extraordinary because... The thought of standing on a Steven Spielberg set was something that was, you know, it was Everest to me. It was just extraordinary. Yeah, it's what dreams are made of. (laughs) Absolutely a dream. So I just turned up and did the work. And Tom said, well, you're coming back tomorrow and then the next day. And it went on. And all in all, I think I was there for six weeks. Oh, that's brilliant. But I'd agreed to do a film with Lindy Shaw. And it was a film that no one's ever seen, I think called Where is Parsifal? But it had Tony Curtis, Peter Lawford, Ron Moody, Eric Estrada, who was Chips. Yeah. And it also had Orson Welles. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So the lure to me was to be on a film set with Orson Mm. Welles. Yeah. Because of Citizen Kane and his other work. But primarily Citizen Kane was my, you know, number one film. Of course. And it's just genius. So I actually said I had to leave Indiana Jones. <laughs> and it was Stephen who asked me why I was leaving. Mm-hmm. And so I said, very unfortunately, now thinking back on it, <laughs> I said, because I was just, you know, so sort of taken aback and didn't know what to say. And always the truth is the best thing to say. Yeah. So I just said, well, the thing is, you know, I've said I'd work on this, uh, yes to this film, although I'm very happy here and would love to stay on for the rest of the film. But the thing is, mm. I've got a chance to work with the greatest director ever. And that is going to be awesome Wells, just for a few days. And he went, yeah. I don't blame you. That sounds really fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think he would have taken that as a no. No. He probably would have liked to have done it. (laughs) Yeah, so that's a testimony to who he is, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, a decent, nice bloke. So (laughs) anyway, so that's what I did. That's very cool. And it was amazing. And I never thought even then at that time, you know, I'd, I'd end up working on quite a few films with Stephen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's a few. (laughs) What was the first, so apart from the Indiana Jones, then what was the first one that you did for him where you were designing? Oh, when I was designing, that was Private Ryan, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And then it just, the list goes on from there, which is yeah. so cool. And we've prepared a lot of films that have never been shot, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Is that a little bit heartbreaking at times? Just because oh, yes. you, yeah, because you can visualize things and you're starting to get excited about it. And then, yeah, I mean, we were doing tests on memoirs of a geisha, you know. So, yeah. So, yes, quite a few. And um, Iwo Jima, Sands of Iwo Jima, that was another one. So, yes, they were made, but not by Stephen in the end. But, yeah. That's very cool. And it took nine years to get Lincoln made. Oh, really? Yeah. I did about, I don't know, four or five budgets for it. Oh, my And uh, initially, when we were on War of the World, did a makeup test on Liam Neeson to, to play Lincoln. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it went through a lot of incarnations. Yeah. That's that's so amazing to 
be along for that ride to see yeah and when it came together it was the right thing I mean that's what I mean you can't force things you know no either it it comes about or it doesn't and you know in our business I think that I was once asked I can't remember who asked me now just as well probably how do I feel when you know you go for an interview and you know there are other makeup people what do you feel about competition that's that was how the the question was posed and the thing is, I don't feel that at all. I yeah. don't actually think about anyone being in competition. There are some people who've got similar credits. They might have better credits. They might have worse. But there are those that are, you know, kind of level pegging. But the thing is, when you go in and you meet someone, either they want you or they don't. And yeah. either they want, you know, the next person, and then that's the match. That's yeah. what's meant to be. And you just have to go, well, there you go. Yeah. I think my brain does that. I have a, a very quick moment at the beginning of going, ha, 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 oh no. And then I go, no, if this is if this is meant to be mine, it'll be mine. And yeah. if not, then it's just not not for me. But of course I will can leave an interview and be like, oh my goodness, I want that. But if it doesn't happen, that's fine. You just yeah. I think you kind of go my brain goes through those those steps. And the reverse. Oh, really? <laughs> and the reverse. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I've, I know that not that I would ever name names or you know, point fingers. But I mean, hmm. I've, I've met people. And I thought, woof, that's a narrow squeak. That would not be a match made in heaven. Yeah. You know, I can feel out that if something is like, oh, that doesn't sound like fun to me. Yeah. It's taken me a while to figure out that I want to be taking things that are challenging, but I'm going to have fun doing. Yeah. I don't want to walk into a challenging nightmare with horrible people. Yeah, no. no <laughs> I want to I be mean, able to have a laugh and, exactly. you know, work hard and enjoy, get to the end of it and be like, I'm proud of that. That was fun and I'm happy with the outcome. Yeah. I agree with you completely. But the thing is that you have to be able to afford to do that. I mean, that's the yeah. other thing. You know, yeah. But there has to be something in it for you in the beginning or, or you know, when times are hard. And mm. honestly, I mean, I, I worked on The Princess Bride, Highlander, all those kind of films. Yeah. Um, and then there were 18 months where there was no work in the UK at all. Yeah. You know, there were three films being made. And I was making chips in the, in the post office over Christmas time on the night shift to get some money for Christmas. Yeah. You know, so you have to be able to afford to say no, but there has to be yeah. something in it for you, whether it's you're paying the gas bill and you're settled with that or you're working with fun people or it's a project that you actually, you know, just gets your juices going, mm-hmm. you know, all those things. There has to be something in it because the work's too hard otherwise and the hours are too long. Yeah, and then why would you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, why, why would you do that? Why, why yeah. torture yourself? Yeah. Um, so people must get pretty excited when you say that you worked on The Princess Bride because that, I think, for quite a few people is one of their loves. They love yeah. that film. I know that I grew up with Highlander in the house. How was that working on that? Because the director had done a lot of music videos, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, it was hard. It was really yeah. hard, actually. And it was a good lesson to learn early on. It was 1985. And I knew that if I could finish this that film, if I could actually physically get through to the end, mm. I'd never have to prove something to myself ever again that's how hard it was oh wow let me put it this way the first six weeks there wasn't a day off oh my gosh the average hours were 18 hours a day oh my goodness we did a 22 hour night shoot on the longest day of the year oh my goodness but did you did you sign up to be tortured or did they explain that this is what how it was going to no. be shot or no, did it just just what happened that's happened. just what happened and oh, wow. it was incredibly hard it really was incredibly hard so when we got to new york i mean and and people left i mean people handed in their notice you know we yeah. had a change of head department we had costume department some come and go but the Jim Atchison the designer stayed but by the time we returned from New York there was myself and the second unit first AD yeah the only original members of the crew oh my goodness and I think that says it all yeah I think you need some kind of medal for that (laughs) 
<laughs> but years later, funnily enough, years later, I mean, they, the cast were good. I mean, I love Roxanne and Clancy and Christoph was just a sweetheart. Mm-hmm. Um, very fond of him. And by the time I then worked with Russell Mulcahy on uh, a film with Michael Caine, Hmm. Sir Michael Caine, I should say, Hmm. (laughs) called Blue Ice. He actually apologised. Oh, wow. (laughs) I wonder what made that come about. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was kind of extraordinary. I think it was the only, well, not the only time, but it it was the first time a director had ever said sorry. Wow. (laughs) Sorry I was so horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Or worked everyone so hard. You know, and I thought, well, decent bloke, there we are. Yeah, that's all you need is an apology. It kind of makes it, I, I have yeah. to say, it, it doesn't make it completely 100% better, but, oh, my goodness, that would yeah. it would mean something. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> so, and then I noticed that you worked on Legend, which was yeah. also a film that I loved watching. <laughs> Yeah. And that was Ridley Scott. He'd already done Alien and Blade Runner. So were you pretty excited to be getting onto that set? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And, of course, I hadn't done any – well, I, when I say this, it's absolutely true. I hadn't done any prosthetics with prosthetic people, mm-hmm. you know. I'd made my own version of things at home. I hadn't yeah. – oh, no, or a wax nose or whatever it happened to be or do a life cast, but, you know, yourself – without ruining the carpet. So that's what that's what I, that's where I learned really and we had a long prep time about I think we had about 6 weeks prep because it was such a huge project. Yeah. And Rob Boteen all the prosthetic pieces were shipped in flew in from um, the states to Pinewood and there was a delay there was something they got held up in customs or something wrong. So we had six weeks prep. That's awesome. Um, in order learning how to do things, I suppose, which was great for me. And I did Gump and then moved on to, with Nick Dubman, do Darkness. Tim Curry is Darkness. Oh, amazing. Mm. I'm a, I am a Tim Curry fan. He's pretty fabulous. Oh, he's just wonderful. Yeah. And I, I think that, and he taught me something that was rather, rather useful, actually, something I hadn't really considered, which shows mm-hmm. you how dense I can be, in that he said, you know, I don't think I could have got through this film if you hadn't had such nice eyes to look into. Oh. <laughs> which was really lovely. But for the first time, I suddenly realised that they were looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, rather than you're just looking at them because that was my world. You know? Yeah. And because, I mean, how long was that makeup taking? I mean, it was a it was a big makeup. So he was obviously needing to be very patient. Five and a half hours. Yeah, it was five and a half hours. And, and the worst thing was that they'd been um, in the test, which neither Nick nor myself had actually done on Tim Curry. Um, mm. There was a, a flaw that happened and he had sort of burns and welts and everything. So... He couldn't shoot for three weeks. So when we started to shoot with him, we were, you know, dealing with someone whose skin had been injured. Oh, so sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. So that was unfortunate. And, you know, we weren't in the room at the time, so no one knows what happened. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It was a five and a half hour makeup and the crew would come in. They were long hours. The crew would come in at 11 in the morning. So we'd start at five. Mm. The crew would come in at 11 and they were meant to be doing French hours. So that would mean that you wouldn't stop for lunch. There'd be kind of like a running buffet where yeah. you eat when you can. And then you're meant to just do 10 hours and then go home. But, of course, that isn't what happened because Ridley would get inspired or want to shoot something else or, you know, was creative mm. in the moment in that way. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't necessarily like you were shooting the call sheet. So sometimes that crew would go home and a second camera crew would come in at, say, 10 o'clock at night. Oh, my goodness. Well, we were starting at 5 in the morning, and it would take two hours to get Tim out of it. Oh, my goodness. He must I mean, you guys would have been his officer, but he must have been absolutely... Shattered. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Oh, he'd be asleep. We'd have, sometimes we'd have oxygen brought, brought to us in the morning by the unit nurse, and we'd all have a puff on the oxygen just to keep us upright. And Tim would just be sparko out. In the chair, and it's the only time I've ever slept in a makeup room. I have to tell you because you're not meant to do that at all. Obviously, it's you know no. <laughs> completely illegal. But I just couldn't face going home for three hours. I mean, it was just ridiculous. 
Oh, my goodness. Slept on the sofa and we'd all just, you know, any moment we could, we were horizontal. It was it was tough. The Hall of Darkness was a tough shoot. Wow. Hmm. That's impressive. Yeah. (laughs) And no wonder they have rules in place for these things. But I tell you what, Tim, before we worked out a way of getting the hands off, Mm. because it was kind of like a, a big glove. Yeah. But then we razored it round so it became like a pair of gloves that, so he could, you know, put his hands in or take them out because of those claws that were already on it. Yeah. Of course, he could, he, poor soul, he could barely feed himself. He couldn't because he couldn't hold a fork easily or anything like that. <laughs> so I'd be standing there with a, with a bowl of food mm. and had the spoon and just <laughs> feeding him. Feeding him. Oh. And... and Although he was meant to have shapes and things, and you know, he had all that kind of thing. Yeah. And that was very well set up. We actually had a, a kitchen just for the for the actors that would do protein shakes and all those kind of things. So that was very well done. But of course he wanted, you know, mince and rice. Yeah. <laughs> so I was feeding him and it was the early days of EPK and of people, you know, shooting behind the scenes. So they were filming him. We were sort of distracted a bit by that, and he had a special chair that he could sit in because he was on stilts and all the rest of it. Anyway, so he's sitting on this chair, and I'm feeding him, and suddenly I went, oh, God, and he went, what is it? So he was taking another bite because we were just used to it by now, you know. Yeah. And I went, you don't have your hands on. (laughs) He was sitting there. We were just so tired. (laughs) I had no gloves. His gloves were off. So he could have been feeding himself. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Uh, see, a makeup artist's job is never done. You no. just, <laughs> no. you no. just help however you can to keep that actor yeah. happy and alive. And <laughs> that's amazing. Oh yeah. my goodness. So, I mean, working with Ridley Scott, Rob Reiner, Steven Spielberg, Paul Thomas Anderson, Francis Ford Coppola. I mean, yeah. you must just be. Every time you're going onto one of these sets, you must have just been like, "Oh my goodness, this is amazing! Never thought I'd work with this person." Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. And um, you know, Bertolucci, that was oh yeah, fabulous as well. Yeah, so yes, you do. But but the thing is, it's the work that unites you. So yes, I get a little bit, you know, sort of. Actually, I tell you, when I was last starstruck. Mm-hmm. It was, oh gosh, now his name's gone. It's come back to me. Okay. So I tell you when I was last stage struck, really completely, and it was at not this year, but the year before Academy Awards. And suddenly mm. the person sitting next to me was John Lewis. I'm going to be really bad and say I don't know who John Lewis is. He's a politician. <laughs> he was a civil rights activist. Oh, okay. Wow. The real deal. And he was sitting next to me and I got to speak to him. That's amazing. And I just thought that that was just <laughs> fabulous. But, yeah, I mean, in the beginning you do. But then the work, it's about the work. It's always about the work. So then, you know, you've got a human being in front of you that cares passionately about something and you're hopefully there to give the director his vision. And if he hasn't got one, provide one Yeah, from a makeup perspective. That's the job. Absolutely. That's amazing. So at what point did you make your move to the USA? Oh, well, I've worked over here every now and then. Yeah. But it really it was about being in the same continent as my boyfriend, who then became my husband. And we've now been married for 22 years, I think. Yeah. That makes sense then. <laughs> yeah. So that that's finally what did it. Obviously, he's a filmmaker too and we met on Braveheart that's amazing yeah he was the cinematographer on Braveheart that's very cool and that was your Oscar win wasn't it for Braveheart yeah and he won as well oh man that's amazing I know isn't that bizarre (laughs) well when we when we got together on Braveheart you know it it was like a slow burn it wasn't a whoosh it Mm -hmm. was and that was it was a tough film too but we go to rushes every night you know and when you start off and you're going to rushes dailies every evening you know the enthusiasm's there in the beginning mm. and obviously as the hours get longer and people get tired the group that go to dailies become smaller and smaller <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there'd be like four of us you know the editor John, uh, myself, and Mel. Yeah. So, and occasionally the producers, you know, or more often than not, they were there, I suppose. But that was a group. So, of course, that's when we spoke to each other because I'm not being chatty with the cinematographer while you're standing on a film set. 
Yeah, no. You know, so that's where we sort of started to think, oh, you're quite nice, actually, with that. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. So where was that shot? Well, we started off prep at Shepparton. Um, and then it was going to be shot in Scotland, but then we withdrew from Scotland after about five weeks, I think it was there, and went to Ireland because the tax incentive made sense. So most of it was shot in Ireland. Okay. Southern Ireland, yeah. And when you say that it was a hard shoot, was it just because of being out? Was it the locations and the hours and just being out in the elements? And yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you can see, I mean, the, the definitely the weather was one of the characters because when you look at the film, you, it really does set the tone. Yeah. And that, that torrential pouring, unforgivable rain and yeah, up to knees in mud, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's exhausting. Mm. And there was one day on the Curra where everyone was frozen and you can see it and it works brilliantly in the film. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So what kind of effect do you think on your career winning the Oscar had? Did you feel a shift after that or it was just business as usual? Well, that's a really good question. I wish I had a sort of uh, uh, something rather fantastic and marvellous, insightful <laughs> to say. But the truth is I don't actually know because it was it was such an odd time in that before I'd made the move to here, you see, and mm-hmm. sat the test here to get into the union. Yeah. Um, Francis asked me to do Rainmaker when it was non-union and then it turned union. Oh, brilliant. So that's how that came about. And then I sat the test to, you know, head department. Um, yeah. And so I can't actually say. It was it was just sort of one step in front of the other. I don't – actually, there's a part of me that makes me think that when you do win an Academy Award, it can be – it can actually be off-putting to some people. I have heard that. Because they think you're going to be grand or they think they can't afford you. Yeah. You know, or – Something along those lines, which I find rather peculiar. Yeah, I have heard that that it was uh, even actors have felt that way. That it's people will say, "Oh no, they're an they're Academy Award winner. They're not going to want to work on my film." Yeah, and of course the truth is that you want to work on. I mean, I don't mind working on low budget films. Yeah, you know, I want to work on a film that's exciting and fun. Yeah, and you can be. Your work and you, hopefully, but it doesn't matter whether you individually are, but your work is appreciated and you get that sense of camaraderie. I mean, I look back and that's what drives it. That's what's the engine. It's not necessarily doing a big film or something prestigious or supposedly prestigious. Mm. It's what fits, what works. Yeah. I even had that attitude when I moved over from New Zealand, I was getting that response. I arrived in Los Angeles. I was not in the union. I was needing to get my days and go through all of what you need to do. And I was coming up against like going in for interviews or going for jobs and they would look at my resume. And because I'd been lucky enough to work on big films in New Zealand, they were just like, oh no, she's worked on that. Why do you want to work on this film? And it's just like, well, pretty much starting again. (laughs) (laughs) Because um, I wouldn't say that, but it was just like... I mean, most of the time it was something that I was going for that sounded fun. And it was just like, well, I need to meet people and I want to work on stuff. I just want to be working. Don't let that put you off. Exactly. It's it's, it's a funny, funny reaction, I think, to have. Yes, a perception. It's a perception of something that's other, but you're still you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's a pretty amazing whirlwind to go through, though. You're meeting your husband to be and working on an amazing film and then you guys get to go to the Oscars together and you both win so that party night must have been pretty amazing oh it was great (laughs) yes it was great and we I couldn't sit with John um the other thing was that I was shooting Fifth Element at the time oh my goodness basically was putting on you know the eyelashes and the freckles on the air stewardesses for Floshton yeah as the car was coming to collect me to fly me over on the Friday for the Oscars that were upon the Sunday oh my goodness on the Monday can't remember now where was the fifth element shooting Pinewood oh so in England so oh my goodness you were really having to fly yeah okay yeah (laughs) oh my goodness so that was that was you know between the jet lag and the excitement and also you know the exhaustion of doing fifth element and I had to fly back and walk straight into the 300 extras for Floshton oh my (laughs) goodness 
get off the plane and go straight there. Yeah. Um, so you must so, have had a good team behind you then, I'm imagining. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're only as good as the people you're with, yeah. So what do you look for when you're putting a team together for jobs? Well, I, sometimes, you know, you get someone who doesn't fit or you don't mm-hmm. fit them or they have a different idea or, you know, they're who, who you think they are and who they are when they're working are two different things, you know. Right. So I've had occasionally had that. But then when you find a team that you know you, you like, you can have a laugh with, but are really good and in some ways are better than you in certain areas, that's what mm-hmm. you look for. You look for yeah. someone who's better than you are in your weak spots. That's what yeah. you look for. No, it's Because it serves the film and it serves the department and it serves that makeup artist as well. Yeah. Because then they can shine at something. So that's what I look for. And decent people, honest people. Yeah. yeah. I think so. When you're working those hours and everything, you need to, yeah. Yeah. to be surrounded by good people. Absolutely. And I like people who aren't pretentious, you know. I mean, that's the that, that's also very important to me. I don't want yeah. waffle and I don't want, you know, I don't want endless explanations. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just want the work done yeah. and an honest person. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise it's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And there's just no room or time for it. It's just like, there's no time for this. Just let's get on with it. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. So shooting, I mean, you must have shot in some pretty amazing locations around the world. Yes. One of my all-time favorites is your home, actually, in New Zealand. Oh, really? Oh, for Last Samurai, was it? Last Samurai, yeah. yeah. Ah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. New Plymouth. It was just fantastic. It was really great. Oh, I'm pleased to hear. But I just loved it. Yeah, absolutely. And New Zealand is so beautiful. And the people just are so open. You know, they give everyone the benefit of the doubt. It was here's mm-hmm. this film crew, you know, some people from had a really mixed department on that, actually. Yeah. Um, so people came from everywhere because they were, you know, New Zealand was busy. So we had makeup people from local 706 in LA, the UK, Ireland, Australia. Oh, wow. So it was a very mixed department. It was great. Good group. Because, I mean, you had some big background scenes and everything in that, didn't you? Yeah, we did. And it was, you know, this tiny town Mm. (laughs) was suddenly swamped by not only Hollywood, but also, you know, 500, 550, I think it was at the the height, you know, Japanese young men. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is really bizarre. And you'd on the Saturday there was only half day opening. There's half day closing on a Saturday for the shop. Yeah. And of course you get out as soon as you can to get your provisions for the week. So we'd come out of this rather small supermarket and there'd be, you know, a shoal of ten Japanese saburai. So that, that, and in their cities, of course. But yeah. then they would come along and, and they'd recognise you, obviously, and everyone bowed. And that was, that was rather odd to see the locals actually go from, did you see that? Yeah. My eyes, those ten young men all bowed to these two people. You know, from that kind of shock to by week eight, it was like, yeah. oh, hello, you know, and Everyone was bowing to each other. Just completely normal. That's <laughs> awesome. So, right. <laughs> so just so the shops at no point did they decide, oh, we'll, we should open for a full day on a Saturday. No, they just stuck no. with their house. Yeah. <laughs> of course they did. Yeah. <laughs> so there was one fish and chip shop mm. that then was doing fish and chips and sushi. <laughs> <laughs> must have been the beginning yeah <laughs> oh that's great oh i tell you i miss a good fish and chip shop oh yeah <laughs> um so in all your locations as well which one had did you find the most challenging oh oh that's really that's a tough one i might have to put the thinking cap on for that <laughs> well actually to be perfectly honest i'm not good at sea so okay. <laughs> on boats that bob about. That makes sense. So I think bob about boats would mm-hmm. be the one that makes me go, oh, no, really, do I have to? Um, yeah. 
Yeah. I normally have to take something and then worry that it's going to make me sleepy or that type of thing on top of dealing with being, yeah, Yeah. on a floating bobby. Yeah, Yeah. I'm the same. Yeah, they're the ones. I mean, actually, I I suppose it's hard to say what's tough. I mean, normally things at sea are tough. Yeah. And beaches. Anything on a beach, especially when (laughs) – because sand and makeup aren't friends to each other no and it gets everywhere and it's it just a huge royal pain in the ass yeah that's true i feel like too by the end of a day walking on sand and standing on it oh my god it's exhausting it like well on ryan you know we we also had the the extra thrill of you had to walk half a mile along the beach mm. but to get down to it you, there were 98 steps down oh my god, the no. cliff face with all your equipment in a dry suit so you could run in and out of the sea. <laughs> and, and, you know, you got all the prosthetics and the peddler and all those things for the blood effects. I mean, my God. Anyway, by the end of those three weeks, we had bottom muscles like you can't believe. We were fit. We had buns of steel. <laughs> we, we could have cracked walnuts. <laughs> that's awesome but oh yeah once you'd get down those stairs it'd be like i I hope i haven't forgotten anything i'm not going back up there until it's time to wrap (laughs) exactly oh my goodness and dealing with all the blood with the sand oh that's amazing so throughout your career what what do you feel have been like some really noticeable changes in the film industry well one of the most obvious ones actually Mm. are the amount of women who are heads of department on films now. Oh, wow, that's cool. Because when I began, that was not the case. Right. It was always the makeup man. Okay. So, well, not always, that's not fair, but, you know, (laughs) 90% of the time. Yeah. Um, So I would say that's a change. And the, the amount of diversity on film crews has increased, which I think is fabulous. Yeah, that's good. But the hours have got longer. They've gotten longer? Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's not what I want to hear. (laughs) Yeah, no, the hours have got longer. Um, Yeah, it's rough. Yeah, definitely. I I actually, there's something, and I'll tell you the other thing I've noticed, and I know this sounds, this is really politically incorrect, but I'm going to say (laughs) it anyway. i tell you what has actually expanded in the most extraordinary way, and it's the production office. Right. The amount of people in a production office, I would say, has tripled or quadrupled. Yeah. Because I remember films, large films, being mm-hmm. done with far fewer people. Yeah. And sometimes they'd just be, you know, the coordinator, singular, not multiple. Yeah. So I would say the production office has expanded beyond all recognition and the makeup department seems to be decreasing. <laughs> yep, I would. Yeah. I um I worked on a film semi recently that was out of state and we were having to kind of fight not myself so much. I, I hired locally. I was I was comfortable with hiring locally. I found some great people. Um but the makeup department was having trouble and so she wanted to bring at least her key in from somewhere else right and the fight that she had to go through was quite extraordinary and she kept saying to me she's just like they keep flying in these PAs I don't understand (laughs) she's like the production office is fully from out of town she's like I don't understand why production are allowed to bring in all the PAs but I'm having to fight like anything to bring in a skilled makeup artist. Like she was needing someone who could specifically do, you know, had skills in certain areas. And, yeah, that was very confusing to both of us. So maybe that goes along the lines of what you're saying as as well, I think. (laughs) What I'm really basically saying, which is the politically incorrect thing to say, is there Mm. seems to be this false belief that the film is made in a production office (laughs) where in actual fact it's made wherever it happens to be that the director, the actors and those supporting it gather. Yeah. And I don't know why this this new I mean I just 
there's there's a question mark. I don't know whether it's because it's become more a business. Maybe. But it always was a business. So yeah. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, if you can lighten your load, you're going to, aren't you, and spread it out through over more people, maybe. Yeah. I mean, if we could do that, we probably would too, but they're not letting us. <laughs> oh, no. I actually, do you know, well, to be perfectly truthful, I think it's always good if, if people are busy enough that there's, you know, a sufficient amount so you're not frenzied and yeah. things fall through the cracks because you're either too tired or the work, it's, there's just too much, you're overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, but I do like it to be quite tight because then – Idle, you know, idle hands aren't good. No. That's when you get that kind of, you know, conversations or gossip or whatever it is or someone sitting there looking at a magazine, which, of course, mm-hmm. I just want to set fire to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, all those kind of things. Yeah. There's nothing worse, I think, than actually feeling bored on a film set. <laughs> oh, no. It's dreadful. Like you're watching it's paint so, dry. Yeah. It's absolutely torturous. No. And I think, too, that, like, as you were saying earlier, that when you do have the luxury of kind of reasonably picking and choosing what you want to do, you are going to choose the the film that is going to keep you stimulated and yeah. moving and challenged. And because if, if it's boring, you're just or slow or you're just going to be like, oh, especially if you're, you know, doing 18 hours of that and you're like, oh, my goodness, you're just watching the clock. Yeah. No, that's so. horrible. <laughs> We've all had that on the odd occasion. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, let's talk about the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Yes. You're the first vice president? Correct. What does that mean? And what does the job entail? Because I have no idea. Well, it's all voluntary. Okay. That's, that's the first thing. So none of you know, the staff gets paid, but all the governors, it's all voluntary. So I was elected as the makeup and hairstyling branch governor. Mm-hmm. And then as a governor, you there are three of us, um, uh, one hairstylist and two makeup people to represent the proportions of the membership of the branch. Okay. And what happens is it's a three-year term and you sit on various committees. You obviously are there for the governance of the academy. So you're looking at the finances and there's a finance committee there's an awards committee, there's outreach and education, and there's history and preservation. Okay. So each of those currently have a vice president who heads those committees. Mm-hmm. And you, the board of governors elects the officers annually. So the year when John Bailey was voted in as president, I got voted in as first vice president, which means that, you know, just like with anything else, if John couldn't do something, an event or whatever, then I would be expected to be the understudy. It's like being an understudy. But my purview is to oversee the awards and events committee. Okay. And they keep electing me to that place. (laughs) (laughs) So you must be doing something right then. (laughs) I've called them all. Yeah, no, I I don't. uh, Yeah, it's a great honour and it's fascinating. I absolutely love it, to be perfectly honest. I really That's awesome. Do. I was mm. going to ask, like, what? how did you begin on that path of going in that direction? Well, just out of interest, actually. Okay. I mean, it, it wasn't really a burning ambition. I mean, I've never really, I've never really been that way. It's just, all oh, that's really interesting. And then you have conversations about it. And I think that if you're a member of a club, I mean, what it actually comes down to is this. If you're a member of something mm. and you feel that either some change is needed or you want to find out how it really works or, you know, want to contribute in some way, then you need to be active within it. Yeah. What you can't do is moan about something and just stand on the outside. Right. If you want want something changed or opened up or feel that there is something that you'd like to explore, then you need to be involved in it. So that's how it came about, simply. I mean, I started with the executive 
committee of the branch and was on that for, oh, God, years. I mean, I think, what, 15 years or something with a year okay. off in between. Yeah. So it was kind of like a natural progression. But, of course, there's nothing to say you'd be voted in. I mean, if people don't like you or don't think you're good at it, then they wouldn't vote for you, one assumes. Yeah, that's very cool. It is cool. It's extraordinary. It's a very different perspective because, obviously, I would – well, I suppose my main loyalty is to – the branch, obviously. But when you're a governor, it's to the branch and all the other branches as well. Right. And particularly when you're an officer. So sometimes there might be something that would be beneficial for the makeup and hairstyling branch per se. But in actual fact, it would not be in the academy as a whole, all the branches' interest or benefit. Right. So yeah. then you would have to choose the academy over your own branch. Right. It must be tricky at times. Yeah, because that, that can be tricky. I mean, fortunately, I haven't actually been in that position, so <laughs> yeah. it's good. But, yes, I mean, that theoretically is what you should do. It's kind of like, you know, working out the balance, working out the middle path. Yeah. Because, obviously, if it is beneficial for 99% of the academy members, then that will fold in X amount of makeup artists and hairstylists as well. That's awesome. Hey, now I wanted to ask you too, Lois, um, who would you like to hear on the podcast? I know I was thinking about that and I really, I don't want to, I don't want to say, I mean, I know that's awful because <laughs> there's so many people I like. And no, so, that's I, I, understandable though. <laughs> I can't put them in order. And more no, than you that, don't someone need to. Would, someone would be upset and I just don't want anyone upset. <laughs> that can be your answer, Lois. I don't want to pressure you that's totally fine <laughs> all right good. thank you very much i tell you who i would have loved to have heard from i mm -hmm. mean i would love to have heard from dick smith tom mm -hmm. smith roy ashton yeah all those that have gone before if i yeah. could have a choice i'd want to hear their voices so i think it's yeah. very important work that you're doing because you know somewhere in the future god knows there might be someone out there who go oh, i'd really want to hear you know lois burwell and and Peter Swords King. <laughs> oh, know? that's cool. I think um, so too. Yeah. That's awesome. I think it's important. It is. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lois. What a pleasure to chat with you. Well, all I'll say is you're doing magnificent work and it's been my absolute joy and pleasure to spend oh, this time with you. Thank you, Lois. For links to see more of Lois's work, go to the episode notes page on our website, www.thelastlookspodcast.com. The Last Looks Podcast would like to thank Brett Stanley and Sabrina Castro, the song Fun Time by DJ Quads. Thanks for listening. Until next time. That's a wrap, people. 